we turn in the Word of God to the second letter of Paul to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians, and read from chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. If you have a church Bible, that is page 1162. So let's hear God's Word from the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 7. Paul, writing about the ministry of the Old Covenant, what he calls the ministry of death, he says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. People everywhere need light, and they enjoy light. We're now in the darkest time of year. We're approaching the shortest day and the longest night. And there are many of us who find these short days bleak, hard, depressing. We long for the return of more daylight, more sunshine, though the sun is now shining, which is a mercy. We long for longer and warmer days. There's something in all of us that longs for the light. Psalm 4 says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O God. We long for light. And the God who created us, the God who made you, made you in that way. To enjoy light. To want more light. It's no accident that the first spoken words of God in the Bible are, as you know, let there be light. And in our verse this morning in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, Paul is taking us right back to that first creation. Before God created light, there was darkness. This light only came into being because God commanded it. And this light was good. And that was true at the first creation. But it's also true in what Paul calls the new creation, the second creation. What is the new creation? Brothers and sisters, this new creation is here today in many of you by God's grace because the new creation is when a human soul is united to Jesus Christ, is born again, becomes a Christian. Paul explains this in chapter 5 and verse 17. He says quite literally, if anyone is in Christ, new creation! Exclamation mark if there were such things in the original language. So what happens when somebody, a man or woman or child, is born again or becomes a Christian? Paul in this verse is making use of the first creation to tell us something vitally important about the new creation. As it was at the beginning, it is when any human soul comes to Christ, is born again, becomes a new creation. Let me update what I said just a moment or two ago. In the present tense, and these will be our three points this morning, before God creates light, there is darkness. This light only comes into being because God commands it. And this light is good. 
because it's the light of the glory of the face of Jesus Christ. First of all then, before God creates light, there is darkness. And I ask you a question. What state and condition are people in if they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is given right here in our passage in chapter 4 and verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When Paul speaks of the God of the world, he means Satan. He means the devil. And he's saying this, when people are not Christians, they are blinded by Satan, who holds them in captivity. And this captivity means blindness. It means darkness. There is this basic, fundamental inability about unbelievers. And the Bible calls them unbelievers. It's not merely that they will not see, don't want to see, choose not to see, don't open their eyes, don't remove their blindfold, don't turn around. No, they cannot see. They cannot see. But we've got to ask a question. What cannot they see? And what can they see? Let's be clear about this. What can unbelievers see? What can people who are not Christians see? Well, first of all, they can see good and bad in this world. People who are not Christians are able to make reasonable and accurate judgments about what is right and what is wrong. People who are not Christians know that honesty and kindness and peace are good things. They applaud those things. They also know that lying and cruelty and aggression are bad things. Non-Christians, unbelievers, can be very able people, very honest people, very kind people. They can be these things more than many believers, can't they? We know that from experience. There are many unbelievers who are far more able, honest, and kind than I am. Unbelievers we can say this, can see that there is a God. They can. Many of them will say that they believe in God. And even if they don't, there is enough evidence around them, the Bible tells us, to leave them without any excuse. They know that there is a God. Unbelievers might have all sorts of interests and beliefs and opinions that we might class as religious or spiritual. They might even be found in places of worship and even in places of Christian worship, in churches. They can be found in churches even like this church. Unbelievers can. I'll say more than this. Unbelievers can see that Jesus lived and did great things. There are very few people who will deny that Jesus existed. 
Many will say, yes, Jesus was a great man and did wonderful things. We would all benefit from the example of Jesus, the, the lessons of Jesus. Many of these will say, yes, he, he died on a cross. They might even say that he rose again from the dead. You can be blind and unbelieving and you can still believe in your head notionally that Jesus died and rose again. You might be quite clear about the facts. And I'm saying to you this morning, brothers and sisters and friends, it's more than notion. It's more than facts. It's more than being able to trot out the right answers in Sunday school or a children's talk or anything like that. These things are not enough for you to have the sight and the light that means that you are a true Christian and a child of God. Because what is it that unbelievers cannot see? Well, we're told here in verse 4, they cannot see, I'll emphasize these three words, the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Unbelievers cannot see the light of Christ. The capacity for spiritual sight is not in them. Just as somebody born blind who has been blind for 70 years cannot see, will not see, is unable to see, has no such capacity in themselves. You can't say to a blind person, see. You can't say to a deaf person, hear. You can't say to a paralyzed person, get up and walk and move around. You can't do such a thing. They're unable to do that. They can't see the light of Christ. There's no sight in them. And then for the same reason, unbelievers cannot see the gospel. See how Paul refers in verse 4 to the gospel. What does gospel mean? Gospel means good news, glad tidings. It's what the angel brought from heaven when those angels came down to Bethlehem the night that Jesus was born. And an unbeliever may well say that Jesus' coming is good news in a general sense, but will not see it as the unique exclusive good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, living, crucified, and risen, that He and His coming is the infinitely happy, glorious, wonderful message of salvation that they need, that we all need. People might say to us things like this, I'm glad it works for you. I'm glad you found something that makes you happy. I wish you all the best. I wish you well. Well done that you found something that suits you and your temperament and, and who you are. And we say to them, but no, this is not just my good news, my gospel. It is the good news. It is good news for all the nations, for all the world. It is unique, glorious, unparalleled good news. And an unbeliever can't see that. And we go on, because unbelievers cannot see the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They can't see anything 
uniquely special or different about Jesus Christ compared to others. They all say, oh, Jesus was a great man. But there have been other great men and other great women as well down the ages. Jesus comes as part of a a pantheon, a group of, of great names. You've got Confucius and Buddha and Muhammad and Plato and Aristotle and you've got modern-day people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King and others alongside, and uh, he's one of these great life-changing heroes of history. But people are a bit like the crowd in the Song of Solomon who ask the bride, what is your beloved more than another beloved? I get that you see that Jesus is great, but why do you attach yourself to him so uniquely? Aren't there others who are like him? Aren't there other great men and and great figures in history? And we say, if we are children of God and our eyes have been opened, no. There's none like him. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He's the fairest of ten thousand. He's the bright and morning star. He's the sun shining in all its radiance. In him... The fullness of God is found and lives bodily. We look at Jesus and we see God, for he is God the Son. And I'm saying this morning because the Word of God says that this blindness, this darkness that cannot see these things is the natural state of every man, woman, child. We were all born blind, You and I were all born spiritually blind. Before the light comes, there is darkness. And then secondly, this light comes into being because God commands it. So how does an unbeliever, how does somebody in darkness come to the light? How is the light turned on in their mind? How do they come to faith in Christ? It is only and can only ever be by the power and command of Almighty God, no less than it was at the beginning when God said, let there be light. Derek Prime, former minister up in Edinburgh, still around with us, I believe, retired now. He puts it this way in his commentary on 2 Corinthians. New birth, or regeneration, he says, is as dramatic and powerful a work as creation itself. Now let that sink into your minds. New birth is as dramatic and powerful a work of God as creation itself. It requires as great a power to shine into people's hearts to give spiritual understanding as it did to command light to shine out of darkness at the time of the creation. At new birth, men and women are made spiritually alive in Christ. God performs the miracle, how? As the gospel is preached... As the message is proclaimed, as the word comes, 
as Jesus is communicated in words, God will use that in his own sovereign way, in his own sovereign time, when he so chooses to bring that light and life into a soul that previously was in darkness. When we proclaim the gospel as we ought, we do not proclaim ourselves but Jesus as Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. And this takes us to an important question. How does God shine this light? How does God bring about this new creation? He does so when the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. The power to bring that light and life is all the power of God, but he uses the means, the vehicle of the gospel being preached. And sometimes that light is turned on in the course of a sermon, that people are under the sound of the word and that light switch is flicked on as they are hearing that word being preached. Sometimes it's turned on later when God might bring back to somebody's mind the memory of what was preached before. Even in one man's case, as well known in America, 85 years after first hearing the gospel preached as a small boy, as a teenager perhaps in, in Devonshire, later on in America this man heard or remembered the hearing of the gospel and came to faith. Sometimes God might use a conversation or an event to trigger that light switch on. But God always works by the proclamation of that gospel. And as we look at the context of today's passage, we can see that this was something that the Apostle Paul really had to explain. 2 Corinthians was a painful letter for Paul to write. He had his doubters, he had his accusers in that church. It was a heartbreaking thing for him. There were many who thought that the Apostle Paul was inferior to the, the so-called super-apostles. These people who came with a lot more apparent power and trappings and persuasion and we might say today charisma, they, they came and people flocked to them and they adulated them. And people said, but Paul, compared to them, really is very, very unimpressive. But Paul has these so-called super-apostles in mind, surely, as he writes verse 2 here in chapter 4. Read what he says here. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. So what does he do? But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. What is Paul saying? We want nothing to do, he says. I, Paul, and those who come with me and preach with me sent from God, we want nothing to do with anything crafty or clever or cunning or sophisticated, any manipulative trick that will coerce people or try and persuade people by some questionable means. I, Paul, he says, I'm not canvassing for votes in a general election. I'm not going to distort the truth or dress it up. I'm not trying to coax 
or sway you into buying some product as if I were part of an advertising agency. No, if I did that, I would be denying the gospel and I would be suppressing the power of the gospel. I would be dishonoring the God who called me to preach the gospel. Paul knows that he and every genuine preacher of the gospel is called to nothing more and nothing less than the open statement of the truth. Tell it as it is. Say it as it is. And he continues in verse 5, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves for what we are as your servants, for Jesus' sake. He's saying, let ourselves move backstage. Let ourselves go off to the wings left and right. Let ourselves be eclipsed. We want the full glory of Jesus Christ alone to be seen so that whenever the gospel is preached, whenever Christians gather, whenever the word goes forth, the one lasting impression that is made is this. This message is all about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and sinners hearing of Jesus come flocking to him. And that, brothers and sisters at Grove Chapel, surely is what we want, isn't it? We want the power of God to be at work. We might say the naked, unsheathed power of God to be at work in bringing people from darkness to light. How does this happen? It happens, I suggest, when we as a church begin by praying that the Lord will bless every occasion, every time, the public, the private, the formal, the informal, the planned, the unplanned, the adults, the children, all of us, in whatever setting we are, that the Lord would bless and the Lord would open our mouths, but that the Lord would send his power into the souls of those we're speaking to, and that there would be a clear, bold, uninhibited proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord, and that the Holy Spirit, taking those words, would create that light as only He can in minds that are still in darkness. God commands the light to shine out of darkness. If you're a Christian this morning, by God's grace, you are so not because of your own cleverness or wisdom or ingenuity, not because of chance not because of random happenings. You are a Christian because the Almighty God spoke power and light into your dark soul in His grace and kindness. And then the third thing we must see this morning is that this light is good because it is none other than the light of the face of Jesus Christ Himself. When God created, he said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that that light was good. And when God creates light in your soul, which is the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that light is good. And it's impossible, I think, for us to read this verse, verse 6 of chapter 4, particularly the last few words, without thinking without seeing so clearly Paul's own personal experience of encountering the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. Surely, as Paul writes these words, his mind is going back to that occasion when he first saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus some years earlier, maybe about 12 or 13 years earlier, maybe 20 years earlier. Supposing, just supposing we had asked Saul of Tarsus, sat him down as he was getting ready to go to Damascus that that day. Saul, I've got a question for you, Saul. Can you tell us everything you know about the glory of God? Saul, in other words, can you tell us what is so great about God? Why is God so great and glorious? And Saul would probably have said, how long have you got? I mean, I could, I could spend days doing that. But I'll, I'll tell you, before I go to Damascus for a very important job I've got to do today. We can judge from chapter 3 what he might have said, can't we? He would have told us everything about Moses and the Exodus and Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. He'd have told us about the glory of God that filled the tabernacle. He'd have told us about the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He'd have said there was glory there. He would talk about the glory seen in the reflected light from the face of Moses that had to be veiled. And in Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about God's glory, doesn't he? He talks about being an Israelite, being a member of that adopted nation, about all the covenants that God had made with Abraham and his descendants throughout history. And we would have to say, yes, Paul, yes, in this there is glory. God dealt in a glorious way with his own people in the Old Testament. There is glory in this. But I have a question. As you're talking to Saul of Tarsus about the glory of God, what kind of man is he? How is it affecting his whole character? The way he sees himself and others? Well, we know from what he says in Philippians chapter 3 that all these privileges had the effect of making Saul of Tarsus very, very proud. Didn't it? It led to confidence in himself. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am of the people of Israel. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am a Pharisee. All these things are to my gain. If you asked Saul about the glory of God, he might end up talking about his own glory instead. He was, after all, a Pharisee, wasn't he? Don't forget that. Like the Pharisee in the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18, who goes into the temple and stands at a distance from any riffraff who might happen to be there and says proudly and boldly, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I mean, look at me. Look at my ancestry and look at my privileges and look at my activities. 
and look at what I am compared particularly to that scum over there in the corner. Paul was proud. But it changed that day, didn't it? Something changed that day. He went on that road to Damascus and a light shone around him that he'd never seen before. And it wasn't simply some random general luminosity that he saw. It wasn't just brightness like a lightning flash. It was the light of the face of Jesus Christ himself that he saw. And it was a light that blinded him for a number of days, three days. And understand this, the light which physically blinded Paul was only confirming the spiritual blindness that had been in him for so long. He was just like the Israelites he mentions earlier in chapter 3. He went to the synagogues. He heard Moses being read. He knew all about the tabernacle and the temple and the glory and all of these things. He knew about them. But there was a veil over his mind and his eyes and his heart that had to be taken away because he did not and could not see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the only glory of God that you and I can see that is glory that saves us is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Three days later, something like scales fell from his eyes. And they weren't just physical scales that gave him sight again. They were the scales of the blindness of his own unbelief. And we read a little later on in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, shortly after these things happened, that immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. He saw this, and he knew it, and his heart was changed. Before all this, Paul had seen none of God's glory in Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus only from a human perspective. He saw Jesus only as a man, and as a man that made him angry. You remember how in Acts chapter 7 you have Stephen's great speech. And as Stephen speaks about the Lord Jesus, but as Stephen accuses the people of Israel for their hard-heartedness and their blindness and their stubbornness, you can sense the, the grinding of Paul's teeth, of Saul of Tarsus getting more and more angry and annoyed and full of murder and vengeance. How dare Stephen speak about my people like this? And who is this Jesus? Who is this crucified rabbi? He must, he's been crucified. Well, they say he's risen from the dead. I say let him remain crucified. But on the day that Paul was going on the road to Damascus, it all turned upside down. It all turned inside out. It all turned back to front. And having seen none of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, he now saw all of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And as I close... I want to ask this question. What does that actually mean? What does it mean to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Think about face for a moment. 
What is a face? A face is the face of a human person with a personality and a character, with eyes we recognize, with a smile we love to see, a friend, a family member, a loved one, a real person, a person with whom we have a real relationship. And there are many faces in our lives, the faces of those who greeted us into this world, the faces of those who are loved ones now, and their faces are so precious to us. Our own faces light up, we say, when we see the face of this or that loved one. But when Paul saw the face of Jesus Christ, his heart was melted, his pride was crushed, he was drawn to Jesus in a way he'd never known before. He saw a new glory of God in the face of this humble Saviour. He went from being the Pharisee in that parable to being the tax collector of that parable, didn't he? Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The one-time proud Pharisee saw the face of Jesus Christ and he then became the self-acknowledged chief of sinners saved and transformed by the mercy and grace of God in the face, in the human face, and yet the divine face of Jesus Christ. And it must be the same for you and me when we encounter, when we meet Jesus. Now, briefly, what do we see? What do you see when you look into the face of Jesus Christ? I'll tell you what we see. We see these things together, don't we? we see that the eternal Son of God was not born in a royal palace in Jerusalem, but was laid in a lowly manger in Bethlehem because there was no room for him in the inn. We see that his first visitors were shepherds. We see that he lived in poverty in a despised town called Nazareth. We see that he didn't rub shoulders with the high and the mighty and not disdain to speak to the poor, but rather he associated himself with tax collectors and sinners and lepers and outcasts and women and children and Gentiles and people of every kind. And these people came and they heard him gladly. Everyone heard him gladly. We look into the face of Jesus and what do we see? We see everything about him that our heart warms to. When we're honest, we see that he was humble and lowly in heart and how we despise pride in ourselves and pride in others. We see this humble, lowly saviour. The one who does not cry out or raise his voice in the streets. We see his gentleness. We come here to Grove Chapel this morning feeling broken and bruised and wearied and we see the face of a Saviour who does not break the bruised reed that you or I might be this morning. 
or snuff out that faintly smouldering wick which is about to go out forever, or we feel that way. We see the face of a gentle, humble Saviour who loves the weak and the weary, who says, come to me, come to me, don't go anywhere else. Others will pile burdens on your backs that you can't lift, but I give you a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. And what else do we see when we see the face of Jesus Christ? We then see him being hated and struck and spat upon and whipped savagely. But we don't see him retaliating or showing revenge. We see him led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers that does not open its mouth, he remains silent. And then we see him on the cross. And we ask, why are you there? And we see that face. And we hear that mouth speaking words of grace. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we see him turning to another man on another cross who deserves to be there. As you and I deserve to be on a cross of our own. And the face of Jesus turns to this man and says, Truly today, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. I will remember you not only when I come into my kingdom, I will remember you today. I remember you now. Because he himself bears our sins in his body on the tree. By his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. He was put to death. He said, it is finished. He was put to death for our trespasses, for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. Whenever Jesus Christ is preached, there must always be one effect on everyone who hears that word of Christ. And it should be that like Job, we say before God, behold, I am... I am vile, I am, I am corrupt, I'm sinful. I put my hand over my mouth. Everything the Word of God says, it says, in order to silence every mouth in God's presence, let no human flesh boast in His presence. Let God alone be true, and every one of us be liars. For what have we to say for ourselves by way of excusing or saving ourselves? The Apostle Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus on that road to Damascus, was going there with murderous, malevolent intent, wanting to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And then God commanded the light to shine into the darkness, and his heart was changed, and his mind was flaming with light, and he saw the face of Jesus Christ, and he saw the glory of God now for the first time. Here is the glory of God, that he sent his Son, the Eternal Son, holy, spotless, and pure, into this world for sinners like you and me, to taste death for all of us. How do I see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ? 
when that light shines in my heart, when I see the love, mercy, compassion, kindness, and grace of God in the character and the person and the face of Jesus, who humbled himself and did all these things that I have just described to save me, even me. That's when the light is shining into our hearts and minds. Here is the true God. Here is eternal life. Here in Jesus and in no other. In no other. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let no other substitute be your Lord, your Savior, your God. Let's pray together.